Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 8, says this, and you'll remember this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Samaria, which we get a picture of today, and to the ends of the earth. So think in concentric circles, right? Jesus is saying Jerusalem, where you live, Samaria, the kind of geographical region, maybe think for us, the DMV, and then the whole earth. And so Acts chapter one, verse eight, about receiving power. These are some of the first words we read in the book of Acts. And they're not only a promise from Jesus, but they're also a foundation. They're a blueprint for how the message of Jesus, what we call the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, will spread all over this world that God has made. But the reality is that the message of Jesus and his salvation would not have gone beyond Jerusalem if it had not been for Stephen's death and then the persecution that that death uh, leads to that breaks out, as we see here in Acts. Uh, The famous words of the church father Tertullian uh, came to mind here as I was thinking about this and studying, which say this. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And so that line from Tertullian could could really be a heading over these first few verses from Acts chapter eight. Right. We saw Saul approving of Stephen's execution. And it says it arose that day a great persecution. And then that Saul was ravaging the church in verse three, uh, where it says that Paul is ravaging the church. This is not some light opposition. This isn't like name calling, right? This is serious, violent stuff. Uh, One commentator says that this word suggests this sadistic cruelty, like a wild boar tearing a victim's body apart. I I happen to think of, I don't know if you've seen advertisements. There's a new movie out about a lion that's like destroying everybody. Yeah. Some of you are nodding your head. That, that picture comes to mind, like just sadistic cruelty, This is Saul, who would later become Paul. This is how he describes himself uh, in what we might call it. He he would describe himself in what we might call extremist terms. He he describes himself. We might call him a terrorist. Like that's what he's doing. Listen to what he says at the church in Galatia in Galatians 1. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. So this Saul, who becomes Paul later on, is bringing nothing but death and destruction to the church. Here's the mystery in all this and the beauty. It is against this backdrop of suffering that the promise of Acts chapter one, verse eight is actually fulfilled. That's what's the paradox of the Christian faith. It's against this backdrop that the gospel goes out through the witness of the church with Holy Spirit power. And so what we see in our text today is the way that the gospel went out into Samaria. And so as we look at the spread of the gospel into Samaria, what we see is sort of three groupings of people in terms of their response or their interaction with Holy Spirit power. There are those who experience the Holy Spirit's power. Right. That's that's the believers there. There are those that actually become a channel for this Holy Spirit power to move to others. And then there are those who seek the power, not the person, though, of the Holy Spirit and end up being denied both. 
So in telling this story of the Gospels as they move into Samaria, it's really kind of a thrilling story and to be a, be a good movie. Uh, our narrator, Luke, is going to he's going to show us how to experience the power of the Holy Spirit ourselves. So let's look at verse five. Look with me at verse five. Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and they saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So let's clarify just for technical sake so we don't have any confusion. This is not Philip the uh, Apostle. But this is Philip the deacon. This is one of the seven Greek-speaking Hellenistic, if you remember back to Acts 6. One of the seven Greek-speaking men, which included Stephen, who were appointed to serve the widows in Jerusalem, what we would call deacons. They were table servants. Philip is one of those. Now, if you remember back to Acts 6, as a Hellenistic Jew, he was sort of seen as a second-class citizen among the Jews in Jerusalem. And on top of that, now he's a Christian, which means he's even more marginalized because he's part of this new kind of radical thing going on. And so when the persecution begins here in Acts chapter 8, he flees to Samaria. And what do we see him doing? What's in his DNA? He went about preaching the word. Like that's, this is the embodiment of Jesus' great commission when he says, go and make disciples. And remember, the language in go and make is actually, as you go, be making disciples. And so Philip is just kind of, that's just who Philip is now. He, he literally evangelized, he proclaimed or heralded Christ to the people he's encountering. But whether or not Philip is even aware of the reality of what he's a part of, what's crazy and what's true is that this is a historic moment. The church is now outside of Jerusalem. The, the Holy Spirit is breaking new gospel ground. Right? I, don't know if you've ever, I don't know if you've ever been to a brown gr- groundbreaking ceremony. Got that letters backwards. Groundbreaking ceremony, right? But they do the thing where the guys come out in their clean shirts that, are, that they're not going to actually get dirty digging any holes. And they hold a shovel and they just put it in one time and they pull it back and it just breaks the ground a little bit. That's kind of this moment. The Holy Spirit is breaking new gospel ground. And we got to understand the other side of how miraculous this actually is as well. The fact that the Samaritans are accepting what Philip is saying, the gospel, uh, the fact that they're accepting the gospel that he's preaching is nothing short of a miracle. And that's still true. If you've ever walked somebody to Jesus, that's a miracle that happened. The fact that you're saved is a miracle that happened. There are hundreds of years of intense hatred between the Samaritans and the Jews at this point in history, which why, which is why this is so incredible. In 721 BC, the Assyrians, another tribe in the ancient Near East, they took the inhabitants of Israel, which if you know your Old Testament is the northern kingdom of God's people. They take them off to Assyria where the Jews end up intermarrying Assyrians and other tribes as well. And then about 130 years later in 587, the the people of the southern kingdom or Judah, uh, they were taken captive into Babylon. But this time, those people from the tribe of Judah or from the nation of Judah, uh, they don't don't intermarry during that captivity. So when people come back to Jerusalem after those captivities are over, the, the folks from the southern kingdom are of pure Jewish blood 
but the inhabitants of the northern kingdom would have been mixed. And so they would have been looked down upon. To, to the pure Jews, these Samaritans, these Jews of intermarried descent are sort of a, a half-breed nation. Which is why, if you know the, the, the story, the parable of the good Samaritan, that's radical. Jewish rabbis were known to say things like this, quote, Let no man eat the bread of the Samaritans, for he who eats their bread is as one who eats swine's flesh. Right? So they're not allowed to eat pork for purity's sake. And the Jewish rabbis are saying, if you eat bread prepared by a Samaritan, you might as well eat pork. That's how, that's how low they saw them. And, and here's a popular prayer from some of the Jews in those days. Lord, do not remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. Yikes, right? Like, so let's call, this is racism. That's what this is. And it's right here in the book of Acts, nothing new. And what we can be sure of is that the feeling is mutual back the other way, because that's how hate works. Hate breeds hate, and it goes back and forth. And so this is where we start to see God's sovereignty and his power at work. So think about the connection that Philip would have had with these Samaritans. Because Philip is a person, he's been pushed to the margins. So he connects with them. That they know what it's like to be disenfranchised, disowned, neglected. And so this fosters a kind of like a kinship between these dispossessed Samaritans and now this dispossessed Christian Hellenist, Philip. They're, they're kind of seeing him as he's like one of us. So we're going to listen to what he has to say. But secondly, there's some, there's some interesting stuff in what Philip is doing that relates to the temple, which the Samaritans didn't want any part of. See, because Philip's message is really centered on Jesus, this person, that downplays the importance of the temple in Jerusalem, which the Samaritans hated. They didn't want any part of. You remember the question Jesus gets. Where will God's people worship? On this mountain or that mountain? And what does Jesus say? In spirit and truth. So there's all these dynamics. And on top of this, there's also, also this dynamic that the Samaritans are looking for a prophet like Moses. And so they're naturally open to, hear, to hearing Philip announce that Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecy in Deuteronomy 18, 15, which came from, uh, which says this, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses speaking this. So they're looking for a prophet like Moses. Philip comes and says, here's the fulfillment of that. So, so there's all these social, there's all these kind of theological reasons why the Samaritans might be more open to what Philip has to say. But the, the, and so what we see from that is that the power of the Holy Spirit is right there in choosing just the right person for this moment. And don't believe that you're not just the right person in somebody's life that you're near. But as important as all those reasons are, right? And those are important secondary things to think about. The primary reason that Philip preached with power is because he loved Jesus. That's the primary reason. I think in many ways, Philip is a little easier for me and maybe for us to relate to for some of us than the, than the apostles, right? We think apostles are like, ooh, super spiritual. They're like extra varsity Christians. I'm I can never be like that. 
But Philip's not an apostle. He's not a big shot. He's in a hostile environment. He probably, by the time he gets to Samaria, doesn't prefer to live where he's living. He'd rather be back home, in his home in Jerusalem. But once he's there, he's just so full of the love of Christ and the DNA that Jesus has given them that he just could not stop telling people about this Jesus. His power came from a heart that is in love with Jesus and his, and his kingdom. And so once he's there, he just can't not tell everyone. I know, I know you've heard that illustration before that the things you love, you talk about, right? Let a new restaurant open up that you go have a good meal at and see if you don't tell everybody you know, right? Guaranteed that's going to happen if the new Peruvian place opens up around here. You're all going to know about it. Why? Because what I love, I'm going to talk about. And so before he knows it, there's this Jesus movement thing going on around Philip, right? So much so, the result of it is summed up in verse 8. There was much joy in that city. I wonder, do we ever think of our neighborhood like this? Our street? Do you ever think of the place you live or the place you work and you dream of what it would look like for the love of Jesus to infect it so much through you that there could be much joy in that place? I want to just challenge you this week. Maybe do some what I'll call holy daydreaming about that. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you a vision for what that what would that look like? For there to be much joy in your neighborhood, in your workplace, maybe in your family, where you like to recreate, whatever it is in your hobby. What would it look like for there to be much joy in that place because of the love of Jesus coming out through you and crazy things happening through the gospel? Right. What do we see? Demons being exercised, people being healed, all kinds of stuff. But what we see next is another example of us moving through the ups and the downs of the reality of the gospel working in this broken world. Because now we see the effect of the gospel on Simon the magician. This is a real interesting little thing that's in here. But we, it's in here, so it's for us. Look at verse 9. But there was a man named So. All this good stuff is happening. There's joy. But there's a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Now, you have to understand, magic doesn't mean he's like a doing close-quarter card tricks on the street. Right? This is probably more to do with pharmaceuticals and things like that. Think sorcery kind of stuff. Okay? So who is this guy? Well, he's, he's probably an expert in the occult. That's what he's known for. Okay? Some scholars say that maybe he's like a renegade Jew and he's kind of doing this for money. This, he's a profit motivated street salesman, showman kind of guy. Now, this reference might fly over the head of a lot of the younger ones in here. But I remember as a kid seeing the original Disney Pete's Dragon. Anybody remember that movie? Okay. One person. Great. Well, go home today. Oh, two people. Go home today and Google Pete's Dragon Dr. Terminus, which is the bad guy. And you're going to see what I think of when I think of Simon the Magician. He's this bad guy that goes around and sells potions and, and stuff to people. And he makes money. Right? He's a shyster. That's what he does. 
Again, he's kind of a showman. He's able to grab people's attention. Verse 10. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. So he had grasp on a, a group of people over the city. So, so this Simon, he has, right, he has tremendous sway. But he doesn't do it in the way that true disciples of Jesus. This is one of the things that grinds on me right now in sort of our evangelical world of pastors building platforms. I struggle with it. And I know you follow pastors online, right? You, some of you follow social media accounts and quotes from pastors and all that. And I struggle with it because what we don't see in the scriptures is flashiness leading to influence. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says about his methods in the city of Corinth. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. That's how the gospel works. So I think what we see here in verse 12 and verse 13 in Acts 8 is a movement where the power that is with Philip is greater than whatever power Simon had in this place. And so it seems that Simon, not wanting to be left out, what does he do? Well, if you can't beat him, you... You join him and he converts. He converts. But church history tells us that this is not a genuine conversion. What we actually have with Simon is an example, again, of what Paul talks about in his second letter to the church in Corinth, where he says, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is of no surprise also that his servants disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Irenaeus, the church father, uh, speaks of Simon as the father of Gnosticism, which is one of the biggest problems in the early church. And frankly, I think is still a problem in many churches today. It's an issue for us as well. And so this is just a little example of one of the ways that uh, I, I just got to tell you, this is how you, you know the Bible is worth being trusted, is stories like this. If this is supposed to be a legend, right, you don't put false converts who mess everything up in the story. You, you only put good converts who do good things in there, right? If this is supposed to be a legend to make the early church look good, Simon would either not be in here or he's going to be defeated in some spectacular manner. So let's keep going here because we're now going to see a really interesting display of Holy Spirit power moving beyond just the apostles. Verse 14. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria, remember, the apostles didn't, didn't scatter. They stayed in Jerusalem. So when they hear that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Now, I got to tell you, I read that, and the first thing I thought of is, man, when the district superintendent visits, I get a little nervous, right? Imagine Peter and John showing up at your church, right? You're going to be on best behavior. That's what I think of. They send Peter and John. They come down. They pray for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they, Peter and John, laid their hands on them, the believers in Samaria, and they receive the Holy Spirit. So we see this practice of the laying on of hands being important again. So what does this mean? Why is it important that Luke records this moment where two of the original apostles... Jews, 
right? Remember, they're not Hellenistic. Why is it important they go to Samaria and pass the Holy Spirit on to these new believers? And why does it matter that it's recorded in our Bible? Well, it means that these are not second-class believers. You're not a second-class believer, because I don't think anyone in here is a Jew. Like that, that doesn't matter anymore to God. It's a signal to all the church in Jerusalem that these Samaritan believers are equal with them. They have the same Lord. They have the same baptism. We'll get to that. But to Simon the magician, this moment is not about seeing the gospel move in amazing ways. This is about him seeing a new possibility to make money. Okay, listen to verse 18. Now, when Simon saw that the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles hands, he offered them money. Hey, can I pay you to do that thing to me so that I can go then and do it to other people? It's not written in here, but hint, hint, so I can get money from them. That, that's what's going on here. Give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. It's important for us to see this. Notice, instead of asking for what? The Holy Spirit, the person of God, Simon simply only wants the power to be bestowed on him. So what does he want? He's not interested in the person of the Holy Spirit. He's interested in buying the authority to give the power to other people. Why? Because if you have that, you can maintain your place of power. You can keep making money in the way that you're making it. And maybe some of us, without realizing it, have treated the Holy Spirit that way as well. Yeah, I want the power of the Holy Spirit. I just don't want him to tell me anything. Because he's a person. Now, this might seem ridiculous, right? But this has been going on in church history ever since. And it's sad, and it's wrong, and it shouldn't be happening. But in church history, we call this simony after this guy, right? One commentator uh, said this about this whole simony thing. The church became a part of the state at the time of Constantine's conversion. Simony was already practiced, but it increased in the buying of ecclesiastical office and benefits. A bishop's office could be bought for so much money. The same was true of an archbishop's office, a cardinal's hat, an ecclesiastical living in parishes and in monasteries. Simony finally gave rise to the Reformation when all over Europe, indulgences were being sold in order to get money to build St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome. So, easy translation, money and power are bad for Christianity. They don't work well together. Simon tried to obtain spiritual power through his own means. And often we do that, don't we? We all got, yeah, I know, God, you want this sacrifice and this life of living, uh, uh, maybe under persecution. But can you just give me a little power? Because, I mean, I want to look cool. Like, we don't say that out loud, but that's what's going on in our hearts. He wants this power in order to promote himself. And, and any time we want spiritual power, spiritual abilities to put ourselves, to make ourselves look bigger, we are making the same error. We're practicing simony. Again, preachers in particular who say wild things to put on social media to build their platform. That's the same thing going on here. But let's break it down into to our own lives as a church family. Even doing that thing we do as church folks... Right? Where we try to look godly or be godly so that other people will think we're godly. That's 
what Simon's doing. Even this is an example of the heart of simony. So is your Christianity about a person and a relationship with him? Or is it simply about getting his power for yourself so that you can look good? Simon should have realized the, the, the simple lesson of sowing and reaping, right? God will not be mocked. What you sow, you will reap. Listen to Peter's response to Simon. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You can't buy God off. You just can't. He already owns everything. Maybe some of us fall into this thinking. We think, well, I, I give to the church all the time. I do this for God. I do that for God. So I should get the gift of God in my life. God owes me after all. I've been living my life for him. I've been giving. I've been doing all the right things. And if that's something you've ever had in your heart, I hope you hear the grace in Peter's answer. in Verse 21, you have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. And then an invitation to repent, therefore. Stop trying to buy God's power. And then Peter goes on to speak the truth of what really what sin does to all of us. He says in verse 23, for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. The, the gall of bitterness suggests a like a deep wretchedness of heart for Simon. This is a guy, quite frankly, that if I saw and I thought about evangelizing, I'd write him off. Say, man, he's too far gone. But not Peter. That's not what Peter does. He calls him to repent, tells him the truth. If Peter says that you're in the bond of iniquity, that suggests that Simon is a prisoner to his own sin. And my hope for us is that none of us respond to the call to repentance the way that Simon responds here. Look at verse 24. Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Notice what Simon doesn't do here. He doesn't repent. He doesn't actually repent himself. He doesn't pray for repentance. He doesn't ask for repentance. Instead, he tries to get Peter to do the praying for him. And so I hope this is an example for us of what not to do. Your repentance has to come from your own heart. You can't get someone else to do it for you. No one can pray you into heaven. Not even an apostle. Oh, Peter, maybe if you pray for me, then God will, will do what I want him to do. He's doing the same thing. He's trying to trick God. And God can't be tricked. And Peter knows this. So what are we supposed to learn from all this, right? Well, we learn that the gospel does crazy stuff that we can't control. It does powerful things. I hope you've had an experience like that. The gospel goes to someone who you wrote off and they become a believer. And you're like, really? And the gospel does something unexpected. We see that through the gospel, God can use a regular person like Philip to bring his good news to a whole new place, to a whole new group of people who are kind of under the spell of this guy, Simon. And because of what Philip does, there is much joy brought to that place. But we also learn that spiritual power can't be bought. You can't buy it. Simon couldn't buy it. No one will ever be able to buy it. It's relationship to the person of God, not just access to the power of God that really matters. It's relationship to the person of God, Jesus Christ, not just access to the power of God that really matters. 
Philip's great power came from the love and the relationship through faith that he had in Jesus Christ. Not the other way around. See, for Simon, he wants the power. And if the relationship happens, that's incidental. But Philip is coming at it from a whole different direction. He says, I want the relationship. And if power happens, great. Jesus' words from his prayer in John 17, I think, are so perfect here. And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. It doesn't say eternal life is getting the power of God apart from relationship, no. It doesn't say eternal life is being able to buy God's power to do even great things for him. It says eternal life is knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ whom God sent. Let me pray. Lord, we ask that you would bring to our mind, even right now, the ways in which we are seeking power apart from your person, apart from relationship with you. Lord, would you help us to seek not the the gifts, but the giver. Help us to seek you above all things. Help us to to see the places that we go into. Maybe the place that we're living in that we we really don't want to be there. But like Philip, we can't help but just preaching the good news of Jesus to everyone and and seeing joy break out as a result of that. Father, I ask that that you would be gracious to us and allow us to see that joy in our lives. Maybe as a church family or just as individuals who are part of this church family. We want to see much joy in this place. We thank you, Father, for allowing us to come together. And we ask all these things in your name. Amen.